So this morning we're going to look at um, Peter wrapping up his letter, and he's going to talk to three different audiences. He's going to talk to shepherds, elders in the church. He's going to talk to young people in the church, but he's also going to talk to everybody else in the church. And he's talking to at least five different congregations, if not more, because he's addressing five different communities up there in northern Asia Minor. But he's going to start out talking to these elders. And in the devotionary I wrote for this and was part of your homework, I'm just going to quote this because I, I think it says it better than I could try to repeat it. It says, Peter was a highly practical man who knew that theology alone was not enough to help his readers navigate the uncertain cultural waters in which they found themselves. And that is true today as well. They were drowning in a sea of competing ideologies that stood diametrically opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And their status as followers of Christ made them a tempting target for all those who viewed them as a threat to the prevailing status quo. Now, that is so true today, just like it was back in the first century, that you've got this situation going on where these people are surrounded by all these different ideologies, and whether or not they had that term in that day, they probably didn't. It's a fairly new term. But all these competing ideas, worldviews, uh, again, they're living under Roman rule, but they're, they're definitely a part of a Greek culture and everything that that brings. And they had all these different religions that were coming down and enclosing them and encircling them. And what do we believe? What do we do? How do we navigate these waters? See, they're under attack, and we've known that from chapter 1. You know, he called them elect exiles. They're aliens and strangers living in a strange land, and they're under attack. And so he wants them to understand that this is a battle, but it's, a, it's, it's more than just an ideological battle. It's, it's more than just arguments over what we believe and what you believe. And we've got to remember that today because sometimes we get so confronted by all the ideologies that are bombarding us that we think at the end of the day it's just about ideology. It's just about your opinion versus my opinion. That group's way of looking at the world versus ours. And what Peter's going to remind these people is, no, 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 it's, it's, it's far more than just ideology. It's a spiritual battle. He says in verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, he's not mentioned Satan anywhere in this letter until now. Why? Because I think he's trying, again, bring the letter to a close and to remind them that there's something behind all this persecution you're facing. There's something behind all the rejection you face and the insults that are thrown at you. He, he wants them to understand the source of their problem. He's already told them the source of their glory, their hope, their future, but he also wants them to know the source of their problems, what's going on around them, and it's the enemy. See, they're visible enemies. Those people that they can see were backed by something unseen. And sometimes we forget that as Christians. We, we forget that all the stuff we read about in the paper and all the stuff we see happening around the world, there's something behind it. These are not just people doing bad things. These are people doing bad things who are backed by and who are really subject to a greater power, an evil power, and it's a real power. Just as God is a real power, so is the enemy. And people who don't know Christ are living under subjection to, enslaved to, 
the will of the prince of this world. We read that all throughout the New Testament. And sometimes we don't think about that. I don't get obsessed with Satan. I don't think about him all the time, but I don't think I think about him enough that he is real and that he is working behind the scenes and he's affecting the lives of countless millions of people on this planet. So at the end of the day, this is a spiritual battle. And you don't fight a spiritual battle with physical means. You don't use swords and you don't do, use weapons that are made by man. You have to do it according to God's terms. And, and that's something they needed to hear, and it's also something I think we need to hear, that it is a spiritual battle. So Paul, just like we've seen over and over again, Paul and Peter are on the same page. They, they say all of the same things, and, and Paul gave us this word of admonition, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it feels like it, right? It feels like it's those people out there that are our enemy, and that's why we hate them. And that's why we wish ill will on them. But they're really not the problem. They're, they're a vehicle through which the enemy works. But our real enemy is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we've got this battle going on that's unseen that we can't set our eyes on. And if we're not careful, we focus so much on what we do see that we lose sight of what's really going on in the unseen realms. And that's why Peter, as he closes out this letter, seems to be calling for reinforcements. Remember, he's writing a letter. He's not there. He can't go there for some reason. The Apostle Paul never went into most of these regions that Peter's writing to. So these people are kind of sheep without a shepherd, but they do have elders. And that's why he's going to start out addressing the elders in those churches. These men who have been set apart, set aside to lead these local congregations. And, and these men are critical to the cause. And as far as Peter's concerned, you are my reinforcements and I'm calling you to do your job. I'm calling you to lead. So you've got a pastor, Peter's a pastor, and he's riding to this flock whom he can't go and see, but he cares deeply for. Remember he used that word beloved. You are beloved. I, you're like my children, and I long to be there with you, but I can't be there with you, so I'm going to call forward the men that are there to lead you. He wants to shepherd the sheep, but he can't. All he can do is write a letter. That would be so frustrating. I remember when my son went uh, to boot camp for the Marines, and all I could do was write him letters. For 13 weeks, we couldn't call him, talk to him, and I could write him letters, and, and I wanted to be there because I knew what he was going through, and I knew it wasn't easy, and I knew it wasn't fun. So I, every day I'd write him a letter, and I'd just send it, not knowing did he get it, did he read it, and how's he doing? I didn't know for 13 weeks, and that's kind of where Peter is. He sends the letter, and I had no idea how, how long it took for a letter to get there and if they ever wrote him back. And so what does he do? He calls up his under-shepherds. Now, we don't know how these men got appointed. Um, we do know from Titus and Timothy there were ways to look for elders in the local church, and those concepts and ideas had been disseminated. They needed to be godly men. They needed to be leaders. They needed to be spiritually mature. That's why they typically were older men in the church. They lived longer lives. doesn't mean just because you have gray hair, you're spiritually mature. We know that's not true. But the likelihood is if you've lived long enough, you've 
got a little bit of wisdom, and then if you come to faith in Christ, you're typically going to be a leader, somebody who can lead and care for the flock, protect the flock. And that's what Peter's doing, that he calls these men forward. He says, I want you to protect the flock. I want you to make sure these people are safe and sound because they're under spiritual attack. So he says, elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd them, guide them, direct them. It literally means those under your care. Among you means under your care, under your watch care. They're there for you to take care of. You have been given an assignment by God. That's a heavy responsibility in any church. To be an elder, you know, we're told that it's a good thing to aspire to be an elder, but it comes with some pretty high responsibilities. To care for and feed the sheep that God has put under your care. They're your responsibility, and you will be held accountable for them. And in this situation, they're under direct assault from who? The enemy. Satan himself is attacking the sheep, and Peter is saying, I need you to protect those sheep. I need you to come alongside me because I can't be there. I need you to do what I would do if I was there. All I can do is write a letter. You can be there to love on them, encourage them, protect them, shepherd them, model Christ's likeness for them. That's your responsibility because these people are desperate. And you can't study shepherding and the, the idea of what it means to lead sheep that, without looking at the good shepherd. And here's what Jesus said. I am a good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. I think what Peter is wanting these men to understand is if you, if you bail, if you cave in, if you give in to the pressures and the persecution and you throw in the towel and say, I'm not going to follow this Christ anymore, guess what? The sheep are going to be shepherdless. And they're going to fail. That's why he says, you've got to do your job, just like Jesus Christ did his job. He was the good shepherd. And he expects you to shepherd in the same way so that when the enemy attacks, when the wolf attacks, when Satan himself, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, attacks, you're there to stand in the gap. Jesus goes on and says, the hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and he doesn't really care about the sheep. What a, what a sad indictment. The inference here is that in the early days that even some of the elders, teachers, pastors of these early churches were funded by the congregations, uh, not, not unlike today. Your giving pays my salary. If, if you didn't know that, you may change your mind about giving. But <laughs> these men, because they, these became full-time jobs in a sense, they got their resources from the people they were shepherding. Well, so does a shepherd, right? A shepherd gets the milk. The shepherd gets the fleece. He profits, in a sense, from the sheep. But he's not to take advantage of the sheep. And that's why Jesus says, a hired hand, somebody who doesn't really own the sheep, who doesn't take ownership of the sheep, will bail on the sheep as soon as it gets tough. And he's saying, guys, don't do that. That's exactly what Peter's saying. Don't do it for money. Don't do it for gain. He calls it shameful gain. Shepherd the flock of God under your care, not for shameful gain, gain, but eagerly. See, they're to be protectors, not profiteers. It's interesting how much in the Old Testament you see God 
speaking against the shepherds of Israel, the priests and the leaders and even the kings of Israel who were lousy shepherds. And you see it all throughout the Old Testament, these indictments by God against these men. See, true shepherds, those following the model of the good shepherd are to do certain things. They're to feed, not fleece. They're to feed and care for these sheep in a spiritual sense and not just fleece them, not just take advantage of them. The sad thing is in Christianity today, there are men who call themselves shepherds who live to fleece the sheep, who, who live to get money and profit from the people under their care. And I think God's going to hold those men responsible in a great way. I have no idea what God's plan for those men, but it's all over the media. You see it all the time. And the media loves to expose those kinds of shepherds. But they should be an anomaly. Sadly, I don't think they are in many cases. These shepherds are to sacrifice themselves, give up their lives for the sheep. Remember, Jesus said, I lay myself down. I lay my life down for the sheep. That's what we are to do. We are to be willing to sacrifice ourselves, not the sheep, not, not abandon the sheep and run just because the wolf shows up. We're to defend them. And yet Jesus seems to say, too many shepherds run when the going gets tough. They bail. They throw in the towel. They give up. I read an article the other day talking about how many pastors have left the ministry since the pandemic because it's gotten really hard to pastor. It's gotten hard to pastor because for a long time we couldn't gather, and so that frustrated them, and it frustrated me not to be able to come together. But then when we did come back together, in most cases, 30% of the sheep never came back. And so you had a smaller flock. And I've read article after article about shepherds who are abandoning their role as shepherds because it's gotten hard. They've deserted. They've left the sheep. And, and we can't afford to do that. And it's not just pastors. It's men who lead the church. You may not have the title of elder bestowed on you right now. But if you are in Christ and you are an older man, and that doesn't mean you're ancient and gray-haired, but you are a man of maturity in Christ, you should be, be doing the role of an elder. Our church has always said that what we do is look for men who are already shepherding like elders and then make it official. That's what we're looking for. And there should be more of those men in the church. It shouldn't be hard to find elders in the church. There should be men who aspire to that position, and there should be men who are living that position out. Listen to what Ezekiel writes, and these are the words of God, his indictment on lousy shepherds. This is what the sovereign Lord says, I now consider those, these shepherds my enemies, and I will hold them responsible for what has happened to my flock. I will take away their right to feed the flock, and I will stop them from feeding themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths. The sheep will no longer be their prey. He's writing to the leaders, the priests of Israel, the kings of Israel. And he's saying, you know what? I'm going to take away your right to rule over my people because you take advantage of my people. And, and, and again, guys, we've got to take some responsibility. Yes, me as a pastor, but also you as men who love the Lord, love the word of God, are Christians and want to be followers of God to We've all got a responsibility to take care of the sheep. Whether you hold the title of elder or not, 
I don't think you can sit back and go, well, I'm not an elder. Whew. I don't have to do anything. No, you got to shepherd your family. you got to shepherd your kids. you got to shepherd those in your care, in your small group, the men around your table. You do have a role to play. So he says, I exhort the elders. I, I charge the elders. I call you to account. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the first four verses of this final chapter are addressing elders. What's an elder? Well, it's a, it's a term in Greek, and like most terms in Greek, it has multiple meanings. It can mean somebody who's old, older, advanced in age, an elder, a senior in the community, but it also is a title of authority. It's a title of officer rank. And most of the time, they went together. You very rarely had young men who were elders, and part of what you see in Titus and Timothy is that they have to be men who have a family, typically. They're married with children, and those children, it seems to be, were more mature. Because one of the qualities of an elder was is that you're able to lead your children well. And most of the time, it takes years to find out if you've done that. At five, six, seven, eight, it's really hard to tell if you're doing a good job or not, because your kids are usually pretty compliant. It's when they turn 18, 19, 20, 21 that you can really look at the kids of a man and see how well a job he's done. Now, guys, that's not to say if you have a kid in rebellion, if you have a kid who walks away from the faith, that you are responsible for that. It, it, that's not what I'm saying. And I don't want to heap guilt on you. But the fact is, most of the time, when your kids are five and six and seven, they're under your care. They submit to your authority. It's when they get older that you find they begin to rebel and they begin to push back on your leadership. And if you, if you interviewed an 18-year-old and said, what kind of dad is your father? You might get some interesting insights. What kind of spiritual leader was your father? You might get some things said that you might not want to hear. If you ask an 8-year-old, you're probably going to get, my dad's a good dad. You know, he, he, he takes me to baseball games, and he, we bass fish together, and we do this together, and he, he plays catch with me. And, but it's as they get older that you see what's going on. But these older men, more mature men, were leaders in the church. And Paul says, or Peter says, I need your help. I need you to step up. And what he does is he appeals to them based on his kind of identity with them. Because he says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm one of you. I don't know how old Peter was when he wrote this letter, but he's getting up in years. He, yes, he's an apostle, one of the original disciples, but he's an older man, and he's trying to let them know, I'm one of you. I'm also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I've got that on, on you. This is something you don't have. I was there. I was there when Christ was arrested and beaten and tried and crucified. And then he says, I'm also going to be a partaker of the glory that you're going to experience. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. So I'm, el I'm an elder. I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I'm one of the apostles. 
And I'm also a believer who's going to one day enjoy the same thing you're going to enjoy, that glorified state that he's been talking about. See, he's a fellow elder, and I think what Peter's trying to say is, guys, I can speak to you with authority as one of you, but somebody who has authority over you as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's, it, there's a hierarchy going on here. I'm an apostle. I was there with Christ. I was chosen by Christ, and I'm speaking now to you as an elder, but also somebody with authority over you, telling you, calling you to do your job and do it well. See, he's, he's sharing all of his credentials. And, he, and I think in, in a way he's trying to say, you know what? I've earned the right to tell you this. I'm not boastful, I'm not prideful, but I've earned the right to tell you what you need to do because he's an elder in the Jerusalem church. We know that from the book of Acts. We know that he's an eyewitness of Jesus' sufferings, right? He was there. I don't know how much of the sufferings of Christ he actually saw because we know that he abandoned Christ when he denied him three times. He ran. Now, was he on the outer edges of the crowd watching the crucifixion? We don't know. But we do know that he was a partaker in all of that, all the way up to the bitter end. And that's why he's able to say that. And he also is going to share in the future glory. So he takes advantage of those credentials and he says, guys, you got to shepherd the flock. You got to do your job, but don't do it in the wrong way. And he gives this list of basically three different things under compulsion, but willingly, not for gain, but eagerly, not in a domineering way. And it's interesting that as, as Peter begins to hammer this home, remember, he's wrapping up the letter. He gives them this, what I see is the Good Shepherd model, and he does it with a positive and a negative. He says, don't do it under compulsion. In other words, do it willingly, not because you're being forced to. He doesn't want these guys to do it for the wrong reason. He doesn't want them to do it just out of a sense of guilt. And it'd be easy to do so. And he knows that because he has authority as an apostle, I want you to do it because you want to do it, not because I'm making you do it. I'm not trying to coerce you. This, this is something you ought to want to do because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Because you have been transformed, redeemed. You ought to want to take care of all of those under your care and do it of your own accord. That's what he's saying. It's exactly what Jesus did, right? Jesus wasn't coerced to come down. Jesus wasn't made to die. Everything he did, he did willingly of his own accord. Nobody did this to him. He did it to himself. And he could have stopped it at any time. Then he says, not for shameful gain, but do it eagerly. Not for what you can get, get out of it. Not for the recognition, not for the reward, not for money. Not because people will go, oh, you're an elder. No, but because you want to do it. Cheer, cheerful readiness is what that word means in the Greek. That you are joyfully ready to sacrifice yourself on behalf of the flock of Jesus Christ. To protect this body of Christ in which you've been placed. And don't do it in a domineering way. Don't take advantage of your position, but do it as an example. And see, this is really important because we know that Jesus had some strong words about leadership because the disciples had some wacky ideas about leadership. And they wanted to be in power and position for all the wrong reasons. And he says, no, you need to be a leader who leads like Christ, like me, Jesus says. 
not for the wrong reason and not in the wrong way, modeling the very behavior of Jesus Christ himself. Loving, sacrificial, lay it all on the line. See, here's what Jesus says to his disciples before his death. In this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Now, why is Jesus saying this? Because that's the kind of leadership they were looking for. They wanted to be those kind of leaders. And Jesus goes, no, it shouldn't be that way among you. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who's more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as one who serves. See, that was a paradigm-shifting, mind-boggling idea to these men that, what? No, it's, it's the guy at the table who's getting his plate filled who's the important one. And Jesus goes, no, it's the one who's serving that man. Now, think about that when you think about elders and leaders. It's not a position of glory. It's a position of servanthood, meaning that we all are to lay down our lives. We're all to sacrifice on behalf of those around us, which goes back to the whole idea of submission, that, that drum that he's beat relentlessly for four chapters. You're to serve. You're to submit. You're to lay down your life as Jesus laid down his. And then he tells them, guys, there's a reward for this. Now, I don't think he's trying to, Peter's not trying to get them to focus, do it for the reward. That's not his point. He says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, the topic of rewards is an interesting topic among Christians because there are those who say they don't exist. Why would we get rewards in heaven? Why are there crowns in heaven? But you can't escape the fact that the gospel writers and the writers of the epistles all talked about these rewards. What are they? I'm not quite sure. But we have here, Peter saying, you're going to receive the unfading crown of glory. What's he talking about? What's he telling these men? I don't think he's telling them, you're going to get a special crown because you were an elder. In other words, the elders in this church are not going to have special crowns they wear around in the eternal kingdom. I don't, I don't think that's what it's saying. I think they're going to get the very same crown that you and I are going to get he's telling them that if you just do your job and guess what you're going to get glory a different kind of glory and it's interesting that in this 11 verses of chapter 5 I put together this little chart for you it's in your notes but he's got three different audiences the elders the older men in the church who are leaders he's got younger people he refers to and then he talks to everybody else he's addressing the whole church but in every case, what he does is he points them to the reward. He says, shepherd selflessly and God will give you an unfading crown of glory. Just do your job. Do what you've been called to do. He tells the young people, live submissively. To who? To these elders. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that in every generation, the young people don't want to listen to the old people? It's in every generation. I didn't want to listen to my mom and dad. I thought I was smarter than they were. And your kids think they're smarter than you are. And the older they get, the more they're convinced they are. But he says, no, live submissively. God will one day exalt you. Why don't we want to submit? Because we want to be exalted. I want to be in charge. I want to be smart. It's the main reason I started my own company back in the early 80s. is because I was young and stupid and arrogant and prideful. 
And I thought I was smarter than every man I ever worked for and that he was an idiot and I could do his job better than him. So I started my own company and I learned I was the idiot. I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. It's hard to run a company. It's hard to be successful. But we're to submit and let God exalt us at the proper time. Then he talks to everybody in the church. Live humbly, resist the devil, stand firm in your faith, and God will restore, strengthen, confirm, and establish you. The emphasis is on what? The end. And we've talked about this for 12 weeks now. It's an eschatological letter. It's all about the future. Keep your eye on the prize. That's what he's telling them. So he tells these young people, be subject to the elders. Come under them, submit to them, and then clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? Humility. Well, what's he telling these young people? And why is it so important that they submit? Because they're the future of the church. One of the things I get concerned about when it comes to Big C Church, the church globally, is the, the number of young people we're losing. They, they seem to be walking away from the faith. The, you know, on the census now, there's a category that you can list of what's your religious affiliation, and it's, one of them is nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and it's the largest percentage of people. And the largest percentage of young people check that box when it comes to their religion, none. And it's growing. I think it's like 65% now say they are unreligious and walking away from the faith. So that's why this is important. See, you can't lead people who won't follow. You can't. You can try, but then you end up beating them, coercing them, forcing them, and that's not what we're called to do. It's really hard. If people won't submit to godly leadership, it's really hard to lead them. And good leadership means we've got to have humble people to lead. That's why it says you've got to be submissive, come under, be obedient. See, a pastor can't lead stubborn people. It's impossible. And that's why you see pastors quit or pastors get fired because the people go, we don't want you to lead us. We don't want to go where you want to go. And so that pastor either leaves or he gets fired. But Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Well, Ken, you're not Jesus. No, I'm not. But I feel like I've been called by Jesus and so this idea of pastors and leaders and elders speaking and people needing to follow, that doesn't mean you're blind and you just, whatever they say, do, and you're just lemmings going off a cliff. God's giving you a brain. God's giving you the ability to read the scriptures and see when you are under godly leadership or ungodly leadership. But if that leadership is godly, we need to follow obediently. When it becomes ungodly, we need to speak up. But see, in this case, I think he's saying, guys, you know, you're, you're doing a good job. You're, you are godly men, and you need people who are willing to follow. And so that's why he's now talking to the young people and saying, if these men are leading well, if these men are godly men, young people, come under that leadership and follow them. And then he tells everybody else to get on board as well. It starts with the young people, but he also talks to all of you. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. See, he says to the young people, be subject, which requires what? Humility. He tells everybody to show humility toward one another because if everybody decides I'm better than everybody else, guess what? Nobody follows anybody. 
And that's one of the curses against many churches is people who do not want to submit to anyone or anything. And that's why this is so important. Humility. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a phrase also used by James in his letter. And sometimes what we miss in this statement is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It means, if you, if you don't see it, if you're prideful, you don't get God's grace. That's a pretty scary thought, right? To live life in pride and miss out on the grace of God. You're a believer. Your future is set, but you're going to live life without the grace of God. That's a scary proposition. And that's why he puts so much emphasis on humility. He goes on in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Right now you're called to a life of humility. Humility before God, but it shows itself, it manifests itself in humility towards all those around you. Now remember, he's talking to everybody now. Elders, young people, and everybody else in the church leaving the exaltation of God till later. Don't worry about your exaltation in this life. And then he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So humble yourselves. What does it mean to humble yourselves? It means just what he said to the young people. Be subject to, come under, listen to, follow well, obediently, the elders in your church. Everybody, clothe yourselves with what? Humility. And that's a plural word there. Clothe yourselves. The church should need, needs to clothe itself with humility. He goes on and says, humble yourselves. Again, a plural. Everyone needs to humble themselves under God. And God has placed you in that fellowship. Why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God loves humility in his people. And that's why he rewards humility. He blesses humility. But he doesn't bless and give grace to prideful people, prideful churches, arrogant leaders, boastful individuals. See, the lifestyle of the humbled and the graced looks really different than the world. And I think it's part of what Peter's trying to tell these people. Their humility is to be directed towards God, and that shows reverence. So as I come under Cody's leadership, I could easily say, well, I've got more years of experience than Cody. I'm older than Cody. I think I'm wiser than Cody. I could think all those things, and I would miss out on God's grace because I'm not showing reverence to the man that God has placed in authority over our church. And I need to come under that and humble myself, whether I'm older, smarter, wiser. It doesn't matter. And I don't know that I'm any of those things. Well, I'm older. I need to show reverence. I need to cast all my cares on Him. I need to make sure that I understand at the end of the day, God is the one who's caring for me. I'm grateful for leaders. I'm grateful for shepherds. I'm grateful for godly people in the church. But at the end of the day, I've got to put my dependence upon God. And I've got to show that I'm dependent on God. And I'm to be sober-minded and watchful, just as you are to be. That just simply means to remain vigilant. Wake up, smell the coffee, realize you're in a spiritual battle, and you need to live that way. We are in a battle. That's why these three things, reverence, diligence, or vigilance, and dependence are so critical in the church today. 
We can't afford to fall asleep at the wheel. We can't get too comfortable here. We can't just act as if none of this is real and it's not dangerous and deadly because the enemy is out to seek, kill, and destroy, right? He hates our ever-living guts. And he wants to destroy everything we believe in. That's why he says, your adversary, your enemy, the devil, is active. He's like a roaring lion who's prowling and looking for someone to devour, both inside the church but outside the church. But the fact is, his greatest enemy, who he despises more than anyone else, is you and me. See, lost people he's already got. Satan doesn't hate atheists, he hates Christians. Because atheists are no threat to his kingdom. We are. And that's why he is out to destroy us, just like he was out to destroy Jesus Christ. And he thought he had won, but he actually lost when Satan or Jesus Christ died on the cross. So here's this idea, this this supernatural enemy who's out to get us. He's serious. He's got power that we don't have. And what are we to do about it? See, I think it's interesting that he's wrapping up his letter by focusing on this guy on the enemy. Again, he's, he hadn't mentioned him for four chapters until now. And he wants these people to know that at the end of the day, it's not about these ideologies, these competing ideas, these other religions. This is about spiritual warfare at its core. And we need to think about that as well. Now, one of the, the commentaries I've used quite frequently, this one by Paul Ochtemeyer, it's, it's an academic commentary. It's very hard to read. Uh, I made my way through the whole thing. I probably understood a third of it, but I do agree with him on this. He says, at last, the true nature of the Christian's opposition is made clear. It is the embodiment of supernatural evil, the devil. Christians are thus involved in more than just a conflict between competing lifestyles or cultural understandings. Then he goes on and says, they're involved in the final battle between good and evil, between God and the ultimate power of evil. It is for that reason that they're, they're remaining faithful to the Christian calling is invested with such great importance by the author, Peter. This is serious. This is real. We can't just ignore it. We can't act like the devil doesn't exist. He does. And it, I've never seen him, but I have definitely felt the effects of him in my life, attacking my life, influencing my thoughts and my behaviors, because he can't stand me because of who I believe in and what I stand for. So really what Peter's saying, he's calling all these people, man, stand up and join the resistance. Let's stand opposed to the enemy, the ultimate enemy. See, I think one of the dangers we face is that we put a human face on this battle and we attack them and we forget that they are just pawns of someone else. We're not to hate them, but we are to hate what the enemy's doing to them and through them and the end result of their allegiance to him. we got to stop hating the people, understand that we've got an ultimate enemy who is out to destroy us, devour us like a roaring lion. He will not relent. And we know from Revelation that he won't relent all the way to the end. He gets imprisoned for a thousand years while Jesus Christ reigns on the earth in righteousness, and then he's released and he starts the whole thing over again. He's relentless. And it's not until he is confined in hell that it all ends finally. See, and what this guy does is he prays in the weak, 
and he prays in the laws. It's, it's so interesting to me to think of what's going on in the Ukraine right now, or in Ukraine right now. That I, I, I'm not saying uh, Putin is the Antichrist, but he is definitely under a power other than Jesus Christ. And you see him praying on the weak. He's attacking cities and t- attacking schools and he's hospitals and he's praying on those who can't protect themselves. That's exactly what the enemy does. And we see it all over the place. He goes after the strays and the loners. That's what he does. And what he does in the church today is he's attacking our young people. He's attacking widows. He's attacking the weak, the poor, the disenfranchised. And we have been called to step into that attack because the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Jesus said. That's what he's come to do, and he's not going to give up. And we got to understand that that guy, Satan, is our adversary. At the end of the day, it's him, and he's our accuser. These two terms are really interesting because they're both terms that were used in courts of law in the Greek. It's, it's fascinating that Peter is really calling Satan using legal terms. He calls him our adversary. And it literally means an opponent in a suit of law. It's like Satan is standing in the courtroom and God is the judge and he's, he's putting us on trial and Satan is our adversary. He is the prosecuting attorney and he's declaring us to be something other than what we've been declared, that we're wicked, that we're evil, and we're deserving of death. But on the other side, we have Jesus Christ who stands as our defense attorney and intercedes for us, and he goes, no, 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 they're righteous because of what I've done. See, he uses these terms. He's an adversary. He's an accuser. And that word in the Greek, he's a false accuser. He's a liar. Jesus said he is a liar. He's a slanderer. That's what he does. He is out to slander you. So when these people were being attacked and accused, what Peter's trying to let them know, that's the enemy, Satan, accusing you through them. They're just tools. They're vehicles. It's the same word that Paul uses of unbelievers when he warns Timothy about the last days. This passage has always fascinated me in 2 Timothy because it's a very apt description of the day in which we live. He says, Timothy, you should know this. In the last days, there will be very difficult times where people love only themselves and their money, and there's a whole list of things in between. But then he says, they will be unloving and unforgiving, and they will slander others. Literally, they will be devils. Same word. They will be devils and have no self-control. It's the same word used of Satan. Accusers, devils, lacking control. And Paul, in this letter to Timothy, gives a whole list of what Satan's influence looks like in the world today. And here's what we do. when You're going to see this list, and you're going to think of a person. You're going to think of a leader. You're going to think of a co-worker, you're going to think of some politician, and yeah, that's them. No, this describes Satan. It shows up in people, but it's really a picture of Satan. Self-obsessed, materialistic, arrogant, boastful, atheistic, disrespectful, ungrateful, reckless. These are all in that 2 Timothy passage. Unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, undisciplined, cruel, opposed to righteousness, and pseudo-religious. You know, at the end of the day, Satan is religious. What's he going to do in the end? He's going to set up a religion. People are going to bow down to the Antichrist. They're going to worship the Antichrist. 
See, he's not irreligious. He's religious. It's just the wrong religion. He knows we're wired to worship, and so he tries to get us to worship the wrong thing, a replacement. So we have an enemy, and the enemy's real. That's why he says, resist him. But how do you do that? How do you resist Satan when he's everywhere? He's all over the place, it seems, and then he's influenced so many people all across the world. So how do I resist him? He says, you do it firm in your faith. Now, that's a, that's a throwaway line if we're not careful. Resist him, firm in your faith. Okay, but what does that look like? Faith in what? Faith in God's promises. What has he promised? Faith in his power. What kind of power does he have? Faith in his love. Does he truly love me? And faith in his provision. He will meet all my needs according to his riches. So we've got to have faith in the right thing. And what the enemy does is try to steal our faith. He tries to destroy our faith. He tries to rob us of faith. But we've got to stay firm. That's why John writes, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and which is already in the world at this time. That doesn't mean Antichrist is here. It's not Obama. It's not Oprah. It's not Putin. I don't know who the Antichrist is, but he's not here yet. But the spirit of Antichrist is. He says, you're of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because the one in you is greater than the one in the world. We have a great God who loves us, who's powerful, who keeps his promises, and we don't need to worry, even though Satan is alive and well and very powerful. We need to rest in and remain firm in all the promises of God, the future he's promised us. That's why he says in verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He points them again to the future. Don't forget what he's going to do. Don't forget that there's hope. Don't forget all the promises. Don't forget that there's a future, and you don't need to worry. All Satan can do is attack you, but he can't destroy you. He can't just take away your soul. He can't take away your future and your hope. It is secure in the hands of God. And God says, or Peter says, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. And we got to think about that. That's why he ends this entire letter based on what he said earlier in chapter 4. And we're going to close with this. Keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. If there was ever a message we needed to hear, it's that. And that's a verse worth memorizing. That's a verse worth putting on a coffee mug or on a plaque and put it on your desk or on the dashboard of your car. He will never fail you. Yes, you will go through trials. Yes, you will experience difficulties. Yes, you will be persecuted, but you are in good hands. And that's why we are to do what is right. Do what is righteous. Do the will of God. And let's go make a difference in the world. So as we break for the summer, we're going to come back uh, the week of May 9th and do Second Peter. But during this interim time, guys, don't stop pursuing righteousness. Don't stop reading your Bible. Don't stop praying. Don't stop encouraging. Don't stop meeting. Because we have been called to do what is right, knowing that our future is secure. So here's your questions. Share and discuss the greatest takeaways you've received from the study on First Peter. 
what has God taught you in this? What's the greatest encouragement you've received? And then what is it going to look like in your life to keep doing what is right and trust your life to God? What do you hear God asking you to do? Let's get practical. How are you going to do what is right and trust God? Then finally, I want you to go back and read that 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 passage. What are some practical ways we can avoid such people? Because that's what it says to do. And how do we keep from becoming one of them? Because that's the greatest risk we run, is to take on the characteristics in those verses. Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your promises that are true. Thank you for your love, which is unfading, and nothing we can do to lose it. Thank you for everything you have said you will do, you will do, and we can rest and trust in you. And may we do good knowing that you never fail. And we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.